Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Picture this. A stunning Renaissance hall, lined with priceless frescoes from the 16th century, depicting historic moments in the life of the papacy. Cardinals of the Catholic Church process in two by two, chanting a litany of the saints, invoking their intercession as they fulfill their most daunting task, electing the next pope. They're from all over the world, from rich metropolitan cities and from tiny poor nations. As they approach Michelangelo's famous painting of the Last Judgment, they place their right hand on the book of the Gospels and swear an oath. The oath is in Latin, the official language of the Catholic Church, and each cardinal speaks it with a different accent. The College of Cardinals is more diverse than ever before. For the past five days, they have reflected on and vigorously debated the papacy of Pope Francis. Elected on March 13, 2013, Francis hit the ground running. He wanted a poor church for the poor, a church that gave a voice to those living on the margins, especially migrants and refugees. Ecology and care for creation, he said, were at the center of the church's work. Inside the church, attitudes had to change. Authority, he said, could only be exercised as service. Everything had to be geared toward the mission of the church to evangelize. He denounced clericalism, called for a synodal church that listens first, and encouraged all the baptized to speak their minds. Ten years later, all of this has provoked heated debates in the Catholic Church. Everyone has an opinion about the direction Francis has led his flock, and that includes the cardinals that will gather for the next conclave. Will they elect someone who will continue down that path or not? In this special deep dive episode for Francis's 10th anniversary, we're exploring key themes of the Francis papacy that have sparked debate among the faithful. If you're to boil the opposition to Francis down to sort of an essential element, I would say it is a rivalry for the notion of authority. But instead of weighing the arguments around the most contentious issues in the church today, we're going to try to go deeper into the mind and heart of Francis. I'm pretty sure that we're missing it if we try to force Pope Francis into our American conversations about liberals versus conservatives. Well, like a lot of people we know, he's tender and kind and merciful to some, but not to all. Time and again, Francis has proven elusive to any ideological categorization. Despite all he's said and done over these past 10 years, in many ways, he remains an enigma. Today, we'll try to unravel the mystery. How does Pope Francis understand what he's doing? I'm Sebastian Gomes, and this is Inside the Vatican. Before we jump in, we want to tell you about the Disaster Services Corporation, 
also known as DSC. It's a nonprofit and Catholic lay organization that prevents families from falling into situational poverty due to disasters. It's a wholly owned subsidiary corporation of the National Council of the United States, Society of St. Vincent de Paul. House in a Box is one of the most well-known programs operated by DSC. House in a Box provides new furnishings to disaster survivors who are forced into situational poverty. The House in a Box gives dignity to families in crisis as it provides them with a new and fresh start. All families receive the same new items that are packaged for efficiency of delivery. The program is scalable to the size of the family and starts at $3,200 for a family of four. One package includes beds, linens, dishes, pots and pans, dressers, silverware, bathroom setup, dinette, and a couch. Please consider giving the gift of a fresh start to a disaster survivor family. Donate at svdpdisaster.org. That's the first letters of St. Vincent de Paul, svdpdisaster.org, or click the link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. If you dig beneath the surface of the different opinions circulating about Pope Francis, you'll find a common point of departure. Every Catholic will tell you that they believe the church exists to evangelize. But the question becomes, what does evangelization look like? I think people have a very different idea about what evangelization is. This is Austin Ivory, a Catholic journalist and biographer of Pope Francis. There are those who see the church as in possession of a truth, which it proclaims to the world fundamentally through its doctrine, through speaking the truth boldly to a world that doesn't want to hear it. <laughs> For much of the Catholic Church's history, this was an acceptable approach to evangelization. The Church was an established and influential institution that confidently shaped civilization, culture, and politics. But the world has changed dramatically in modern times, and after the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, popes developed and deepened the Church's understanding of evangelization. I think Francis has a much more Vatican II understanding of evangelization, which is enabling the experience of the encounter with Jesus Christ, which is always an encounter with mercy and with love. And that unless people first of all <laughs> experience that and see that in the Church, then the rest of it doesn't make sense. So, if the Catholic Church seeks to evangelize today, Pope Francis believes the Church itself first needs to be converted, so that the message of God's love is its first proclamation. And he doesn't want that to be obscured by disjointed doctrinal or moral principles, as important as those are. This distinction was the central theme of Francis's first major teaching document back in 2013, called Evangelii Gaudium, or The Joy of the Gospel. And we can see over the last 10 years how Francis has tried to put his words into action. He kickstarted this transformation in a concrete way by re-emphasizing synodality in the life of the church. It's not a word or concept that most Catholics were familiar with prior to Francis's papacy. So I want to start just with basics, and I'm sure you're tired of answering this question, but how have you come to understand what synodality is? How would you define it? Synodality is a culture within the church, a way of being, a way of thinking, and a way of proceeding, which puts spiritual conversation and discernment at the heart of decision-making, which seeks the participation of the whole people of God in the decisions and the mission of the church, and that fundamentally it is a very different understanding of 
how the church teaches and listens, that it's the priests, the pastors, the faithful, the Pope, all together listening to the Spirit. And Francis said to me, it's very simple, the Spirit has been poured out on all the baptized. Therefore, all the baptized need to get together to listen to each other to find out what the Spirit is saying to the church. If that still sounds a bit obscure, don't be discouraged. In many ways, synodality needs to be lived rather than conceptualized. But it's important to know where Francis's inspiration is coming from. So let's rewind to the 1960s. The Vatican Ecumenical Council, the greatest assembly of Roman Catholic prelates in history, there are nearly 3,000 high Roman Catholic dignitaries attending, as well as a score of observers from Protestant faiths. This is the first ecumenical council in 92 years, and only the second in 400 years. The Second Vatican Council in the 1960s had a profound impact on the world's bishops, and they had asked Pope Paul VI to create a permanent mechanism in the church to periodically bring the bishops together with the Pope to discuss important topics. These took place every three or four years at the Vatican or in a particular region of the world. But to many bishops, the discussions felt stilted and controlled, especially by the Roman Curia, and there was little consultation of lay Catholics. Francis set out to reform the process in two ways. First, with the help of hand-picked officials, he changed the procedures around those meetings and pushed the bishops to speak freely. And second, he expanded the consultation of Catholics around the world so that the bishops' conversations would be informed by all the faithful. And that brings us to 2023, when the church finds itself in the middle of a three-year synodal process that has involved massive global consultation and will culminate with a month-long Synod of Bishops in Rome in 2024. The topic? Synodality. That is, how to become a more synodal church. How did we end up here at a Synod on Synodality? And, and as uninteresting as it might seem as a topic on paper, why is it so important? Yes, I mean, I think the story of, you know, how Francis gets to the Synod on Synodality, I think, is still to be told. Initially, when the Synod was, when the topic was being chosen, they came up with various alternatives. And it was Francis who said, no, no, Synodality must be our topic. And that it's going to be a very different kind of Synod that doesn't begin with a consultation of the people of God, but rather with the people of God themselves as the subjects or agents of the process. And I think Francis' intuition was absolutely right, which is to say that people after the pandemic, when we're calling them out to talk about what the Spirit is saying to the church, actually what they want to talk about is the church itself because they know that something's not right. You know, we've been through the sex abuse crisis. We've seen the dysfunctions. We see the children, you know, the young people not coming to mass. We know our congregations are shrinking. And I think this is what's on people's minds. So if you like, it's the future of the church itself, which needed to be put under the microscope. For Francis, becoming a more synodal church will help it evangelize better in the 21st century. So while many of the heated debates around synodality are focused on a few polarizing issues, things like women's ordination, who can and can't receive communion, and greater efforts to include LGBT people in the life of the church, these significant questions are not in themselves of primary importance to Francis. Synodality is more about actively listening to each other and to the Holy Spirit so that the church matures in its capacity to evangelize. 
But for those Catholics who believe the church evangelizes by reiterating clear, unequivocal doctrines, this process of listening is challenging and even dangerous. But for Francis, the greater danger is maintaining the status quo. What he understands is that the modern world is marked through and through and through by disbelief. And that this is why we're hemorrhaging people out the doors. And so he knows a mere repetition of catechism verses isn't going to cut it. This is Larry Chapp. He's a Catholic blogger and commentator and a self-described old-fashioned John Paul II Catholic. By that, he means that he's a bit more traditional on those hot-button issues that are coming up in the Synod's listening sessions. But he appreciates the Pope's passion for evangelization. He knows that you have to go deeper, that the church has to be a field hospital and has to reach out to the world of disbelief with a message that says we understand not only your disbelief, but we also understand the complex situations in your life that your worldview has placed you within. And we're willing to work with that. We're willing to deal with that in ways that are different than how we've dealt with it before. Now, that is a real risky strategy that he has adopted. Risky, because the church might unintentionally become too accommodating of complex situations that don't align with church teaching. And therefore, what is at stake is that the church will lose its distinctive, countercultural, gospel-based flavor. It'll lose its salt. And it will simply, like a chameleon, start to take on the coloration of whatever the current mood and opinion of the modern world is. We have a control in this experiment, and it is the Protestant churches. Liberal mainline Protestantism in Europe and the United States is dying, even though they have made all of these same accommodations to the modern world. They have everything that the liberal Catholics wish that we had, and yet it hasn't moved the ecclesial needle for the Protestants. In fact, they continue in a steep free flaw decline. Larry is also not convinced that the Synod's approach will even help the Catholic Church evangelize better. In listening sessions around the world, Catholics have called for greater inclusion, at times downplaying the Church's teachings on sexual morality because they're exclusionary. Larry is all for listening to the faithful, but he's suspicious of the idea that the Holy Spirit is speaking through every opinion expressed. I'm a conservative in this sense that I think Church teaching as it is can be truly radical if it's believed and lived. And that simply changing our position on certain hot button issues isn't going to suddenly overnight make us radical. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't listen. I'm totally in favor of the listening sessions. I'm totally in favor of the synodal process. We need a decentralized church. But I'm going to be very critical of any point of view that that wants to say, hey, we have this consensus in Newark and London and Paris that we ought to have X, Y, Z. That's the Holy Spirit talking. I think this is the fundamental critique, as it were, from more conservative parts of the church, which is that there is a surrender here to the zeitgeist, to modernity. My experience of the Synod is completely the opposite. I think people are concerned about how the gospel is lived in our time. And that's why the question of inclusion and participation has arisen so often, because they know that Jesus proclaimed the truth, but welcomed everybody, included everybody. Nobody was ever excluded from membership of him. And of course, it raises all sorts of questions which need to be wrestled with. But I think that the the spirit of the Synod is gospel. It's not secular in any way. Austin and Larry both believe that the Synod on Synodality will be the hallmark of Francis's papacy. 
more than any single act or teaching document over the past 10 years, Francis, they say, will be remembered for initiating this seismic cultural shift in the Catholic Church. So far, Catholics around the world have raised questions and concerns about inclusion, human sexuality, women's ordination to the priesthood and the diaconate, among other things. How the Pope and the bishops tackle those contentious issues during the final session of the Synod in 2024 is still to be seen. But Francis has been very critical of ideologically driven agendas on all sides. So anyone taking an all or nothing approach to the Synod will miss a deeper reality that Francis is setting the church up for the long haul. The goal is not the synod, but synodality, changing the culture from top to bottom, a different way of being church. After the break, we'll explore one of Francis's most polarizing decisions, suppressing the traditional Latin mass. Where is the reaching out to the peripheries and the margins there? Where's the dialogue? Where's the tenderness? It simply wasn't there. It's a small fringe group. And it's a very influential group that poses a real challenge in terms of building up unity and bringing everyone around to the Second Vatican Council. Stay with us. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. On September 21st, the Archdiocese of Washington will officially implement restrictions placed on the extraordinary form of the Mass. A priest who has already said his Sunday Mass cannot celebrate a traditional Latin Mass. Archbishop Samuel Aquila says a celebration of the traditional Latin Mass will continue as normal in the Archdiocese of Denver. If evangelization is the mission of the Catholic Church, the liturgy is its lifeblood. And like the Synod on Synodality, Catholics have strong opinions about it. Never are we so much the church as when we celebrate the liturgy. It's our very identity. Father Anthony Ruff is a Benedictine monk of St. John's Abbey who teaches liturgy, liturgical music, and Gregorian chant. He's watched the liturgy wars, as they're called, rage in certain Catholic circles, especially around one highly contentious decision by Pope Francis to suppress the traditional Latin Mass. The traditional Latin Mass, or the pre-Vatican II Mass, refers to the Mass according to the 1962 Roman Missal. Older Catholics may remember it from their childhood, when the prayers were recited by a priest in Latin, facing a high altar with his back to the people. The Second Vatican Council reformed the liturgy in the 1960s to promote active participation among the congregation. At the time, Pope Paul VI insisted that everyone in the Catholic Church use the reformed rite of the Mass, but a small group of Catholics remained attached to the traditional Latin Mass. That small group began to grow, 
and there was a desire to reach out to those groups and maybe compromise on the rigorousness of what Vatican II said just to keep the peace and stay into communion. So it was understood that celebrating the old liturgy would be a concession and not the ideal. And many, I think perhaps most bishops, were skeptical of that and said, no, we should not offer a concession. It's not what the council intended. That broad concern for the integrity of Vatican II didn't stop Pope John Paul II from making accommodations for these groups to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass. Then, in 2007, Pope Benedict went a step further. Benedict added a new dimension that wasn't in Vatican II itself or Pope Paul VI's implementation of Vatican II. He now said that there was something good and praiseworthy about the pre-Vatican II Mass that should be respected and become an influence for good in the life of the Church. And what was the impact of this motu proprio from Pope Benedict XVI on this community that was gaining some momentum in terms of numbers and kind of rallying around this old mass. What was the practical impact that we saw happen from that? I think it was a great encouragement. They now had approval from the very highest levels of the church for believing that the reformed liturgy is in some ways a mistake and the older liturgy is in some ways better or superior. And it really gave life to a movement that just developed deeper roots. In 2021, after consulting the world's bishops, Pope Francis stopped the movement in its tracks. He issued a decree nullifying the accommodations made by his predecessors and effectively suppressed the traditional Latin Mass. He explained that the accommodations had not had the desired effect of building unity in the church. To the contrary, some of the traditional groups had resisted the broader reforms of Vatican II and sown division in the church. Father Ruff was shocked by how forceful Francis's decision was. I honestly was concerned that people would feel hurt by this people who had really come to love the old liturgy and, in my view, had been misled. They were led to believe that the old liturgy is better or more Catholic or more traditional when, you know, Vatican II and Paul VI would say our current liturgy is traditional. I knew it would be very hurtful. And I think we still see that today. People are hurt. They hope the next pope will undo it. And you see some of them trying to move towards center and make the best of the Reformed liturgy. You see others digging in their heels and really developing a principled resistance. That principled resistance is headquartered in the United States, where the largest number of traditionalists live and worship. A quick search on the internet about the Pope's decree will reveal how the movement is dealing with it. There is a lot of genuine pain. But according to Larry Chapp, it's often expressed in extreme and unhealthy ways. If you spend two seconds on social media in trad circles, you can't go five seconds without having somebody called Bergoglio the Antichrist, Bergoglio the heretic. You know, that has to wear on a person. I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced that Jorge Bergoglio, the human being, is hurt by that. I mean, I would be. Any human being would be because he's not a heretic. 
Father Ruff isn't sure why the traditionalist movement has mobilized in the United States, but he blames the liturgy wars on something bigger than any one Catholic group. I suppose it's become a flashpoint because liturgy is important to people, and that's a good thing. But I also think that the church, the mystical body of Christ, is being infected by a surrounding culture that is divided around culture wars and identity politics. And I also think that the success of some of the far right, you know, more radical traditionalist views is somewhat of an index of the advancing secularization. They almost reflect that because they are so much a reaction to that secularizing trend. In other words, some Christians aren't being very Christian in the way they're arguing about the traditional Latin mass. And that reveals a great irony. On the one hand, traditionalists fear that Pope Francis, by promoting a more synodal church, is capitulating to modernity. On the other hand, the way they criticize Francis often reflects the toxic debates we see in modern society. And even Pope Francis may not be totally immune. His decision to snuff out the traditional Latin mass was done, as Father Ruff said, in a forceful, even authoritarian way. I think he's a complicated character, but apparently he has a visceral negative reaction towards these traditionalists who are living in the past. And he uses quite emotional terms a lot. And a lot of it's insulting, it's name calling. He's referred to young conservative priests as little monsters. So I can see why some of the more traditional people say Pope Francis is authoritarian, he's top down, he doesn't listen to people, he's not synodal. But I think we can see also why the vast majority of the church and the polls show that, say, Francis is open and welcoming. He's a regular guy. He's someone I can relate to well. So I think different parts of the church are reacting to different parts of his complicated personality. It's probably a case of where you know, like a liberal would say to himself, I am a liberal, I believe in toleration, but I'm not going to tolerate those who are intolerant. And I think to a certain extent, that's Pope Francis's approach here as well. I want to reach out to the margins, but I'm not going to reach out to those on the margins who don't think we should reach out to those on the margins. <laughs> and so you're right, there's an inconsistency there. I wish he was tender and merciful towards everyone. Francis's reasons for taking such a hard line on the traditional Latin mass were twofold. First, his desire for greater unity in the Catholic Church at a time when the liturgy wars have divided some Catholic communities. And second, to protect the integrity of the Second Vatican Council, the council that reformed the Mass. But beyond that, Francis has written profoundly about liturgy in the life and mission of the Church. A fact, says Father Ruff, that's often overlooked, but telling. He is, I think, in many ways, uh, the liturgical pope. He's actually giving us more about the very nature of the liturgy, ironically, than we got from the writings of Pope Benedict when he was pope. Mm. I'm impressed with how he gets liturgy from the inside, and his view of it is deeply spiritual, profound, serious, reverent, spirited, and he gets the nature of the rite and how it is meant to live in our hearts and be a celebration that is evangelical. 
My name is Juan Carlos Cruz, and I'm a member of the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors and Vulnerable People. My relationship with the church 10 years ago was very combative. I had been fighting for my case and the case of many people that have been sexually abused in the church by priests, bring these cases up to justice. I had remained a Catholic despite of what had happened to me, but to me, that church was one of like, you're not worthy, Juan Carlos, of going to communion because either you're gay, because either you're a quote unquote enemy of the church, because I was talking about abuse and the horrors of the unaccountability and the concealment of, of all these crimes. So I was in a very dark place <laughs> regarding the church per se, never doubted that God was helping me and doing amazing things for me, but the church had hurt me a lot. Abemus Papam. Eminentissimum, acreverendissimum Dominum, Dominum Georgium Marium, Sancte Romani Ecclesi Cardinalem Bergoglio. when he was elected Pope and I saw an Argentinian come out in that balcony and I'm like, wow, an Argentinian Pope. Selfishly, I thought, now we know that he's going to understand our situation. He's gonna do something, something, gonna, something is going to happen. And when nothing happened, because of course he was completely misinformed, it was a big disappointment. After 14 hours in the air and passing over eight countries, Pope Francis landed in Chile. Pope Francis's visit to Chile in January of 2018 was overshadowed by the legacy of clerical sexual abuse and the subsequent denial and cover-up by the Chilean bishops. A charismatic priest, Fernando Caradima, had abused minors for decades without any action taken against him by the church. He was also involved in the spiritual formation of dozens of priests, some of whom became bishops. When Pope Francis appointed one of them, Juan Barros Madrid, to the Diocese of Osorno in 2015, the Catholics there protested vigorously. One protester was Juan Carlos Cruz, a Chilean and himself a victim of Caradima, who revealed that Barros had witnessed his and others' abuse. But Francis stood by Barros, saying there was no evidence against him. The controversy came to a head during his visit to Chile. Before celebrating Mass, some Chilean journalists questioned the Pope about the case of Bishop Juan Barros, Bishop of Osorno. He was accused of covering up Father Fernando Caradima's actions of abuse. The Pope responded to ADN Radio in Chile, saying that until there is proof, nothing can be declared. When asked about Barros, Francis doubled down on his position, insisting Barros was innocent and calling the accusations against him calumny. I was horrified. I thought I was going to hell because the Pope said that I lied. So I'm like, uh, but on the other hand, I thought, wow, this is horrible. I need to do whatever I can to reach Pope Francis and, and let him know that we're not lying and I'm not going to stop doing this because he needs to know the truth. Upon his return to Rome, Francis opened a new investigation into the case, which collected 64 depositions from victims, laymen and women, priests and bishops, including Juan Carlos Cruz. 
After reading the 2300-page final report, Francis summoned all of the Chilean bishops to Rome. In the meantime, the Pope invited Cruz and other survivors to meet with him personally at the Vatican. In my mind, I had all my speech in my head. I had rehearsed it. So I was all like, oh yeah, I'm going to tell him this. And he appeared and I was waiting for him in, in the lobby and he appears and he's like, Juan Carlos, how are you? It's so good to meet you. I've heard so much about you in Spanish. And you don't know what to say, right? Because you're in front of the Pope and you're like, yeah, hi, how are you, Monsignor or Holy Father, whatever you had to call him. <laughs> and then he and I walked to this room and the first thing he says, I want to ask for your forgiveness for what the church has done to you. And I said, you know, you immediately, no, it's okay. I, I want to yeah, don't worry. Yes, fine. And then he says, no, no, let me finish. I also want to ask for your forgiveness for what I said, because I made it worse for you guys and for you. And, you know, at that moment, I didn't have many words. And I guess tears just started flowing. And he put his hand on my shoulder and said, cry, cry, it's okay. And his face was sort of transfixed. I could see that he was suffering with me. And, you know, many times in my life, and if you ask any survivor, you will hear the same thing. There's so much fake sadness and fake pain that you immediately become very like, oh, is this a PR exercise? Is this true? Is this how it is? But yet, with Pope Francis, it was so sincere. It was so real. And I could see that it was real pain. When the Chilean bishops arrived at the Vatican a month later, they met privately with the Pope for three days. At the end of the meeting, every bishop submitted his resignation to Francis. The Pope was not silent about his own mistake believing the wrong people. But in a subsequent letter to the church in Chile, and a few months later to the Catholic Church around the world, Francis focused on something else. He called for a profound conversion of the entire people of God, in which a dominating clerical culture would be eradicated, and all of the baptized would be empowered in the mission of the church. To me, actually, 2018 was a key year because that was the year... You can see him saying, look, this is not going to be fixed by new regulations and laws, important though those are. We can sack bishops, but you know, unless we really get to the heart of this, this won't change. And what is the heart of it? The heart of it is the lack of participation of the people of God in the life and the mission and the structures of the church. It's that disassociation. He had already envisaged moving towards a synodal church, as he put it. He had already spoken about a holy synodal church. But I think in 2018, there's this clarity that we have to move ahead now with this. And I think it encouraged him to think boldly about it. Historically, priests and bishops have held power in the Catholic Church. But the Synod's listening sessions have revealed that Catholics around the world want to reevaluate the relationship between themselves and the hierarchy. No one knows how it will play out. Francis has condemned clericalism time and again, but even his efforts to reform the Vatican have been met with shocking resistance. In 2021, Francis appointed Juan Carlos Cruz to the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors, an advisory council tasked with promoting norms and procedures to protect minors and vulnerable adults in the church. When Pope Francis put me in the commission, 
he told me, like high ranking cardinals went to him and said, how could you do that? You know, he's openly gay. There's never been in history an openly gay advisor of a pope. Clericalism leads to corruption in so many ways. Power is such money. We all know sex in destructive ways. Those are all the ingredients of clericalism. But I have spoken to him and he tells me, look, they believe they're in a court and a court behaves like that. Pope Francis is so not like that. And yet he has to navigate all that. And so to me, that is the genius and the respect that I have for Pope Francis, because he might not see it in his lifetime that, you know, we've changed and we're all inclusive. But what he has done, something that no pope has ever done, is going to have a big effect. He's always thinking about things from three or four different angles. And he's always looking, and I think this is his real quality, for the new thing that the Spirit is opening up in front of us. Again, you know, why he upsets people, because he will move very quickly through an issue to what he would see as the essential thing that the Spirit is calling us to. And people go, oh, you know, it's all very confusing, and what does he mean, and so on. Actually, what he's doing is the fruit, of, I think, of very deep discernment and a lot of thinking. Imagine a future conclave. Most of the cardinals processing into the Sistine Chapel have been appointed by Pope Francis himself. They witnessed his attempts to evangelize in a new way and to eradicate clericalism. They participated in the Synod and listened to the empowered voices of ordinary Catholics. Here's the big new factor in the next conclave whenever it takes place. The cardinals will file into the Sistine Chapel having known what has been the fruit of this massive consultation of listening to what the Spirit has to say to the church in our time. I think that changes fundamentally the nature and dynamic of the conclave. Some of the cardinals were vocal critics of Francis and the synod process, believing it sowed confusion about the church's teachings, or worse, caved to modern secular culture. My fear is this, that what is at risk in simply saying, let's open our doors and accommodate ourselves to modernity is that we are therefore going to also accommodate ourselves to modernity's deep, deep agnosticism and disbelief. Others forged ahead in the name of Pope Francis's vision for a more synodal church, seeing that his gentle openness and willingness to change his mind brought new hope to countless people. I am so lucky, so blessed to have the opportunity to be close to a man, in this case, a pope, and I wish every person, every survivor in my case, could have this feeling of resurrection that I have and this feeling of being Lazarus that I have, thanks to Pope Francis. Whatever your opinion about Pope Francis, and there are many, no one has the complete picture. In many ways, he remains an enigma, impossible to compartmentalize. If we were to ask him, he might put it this way. The Holy Spirit is in charge. I have no idea whether the Cardinals will pick somebody that goes in the same vein or maybe goes in this vein, but a little bit more careful and less flippant and contradictory, or whether they'll do a course correction. But I think not knowing the future is part of the excitement of being a Catholic right now. 
Extra Omnis. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was written and produced by me, Sebastian Gomes, and by Maggie Van Dorn. The sound design and engineering was done by Frank Tucson. If you enjoyed this deep dive episode, please share it with a friend. And to support our work here on Inside the Vatican, please consider becoming a digital subscriber to America at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. There you'll find our extensive analysis of Pope Francis's 10th anniversary. For America Media, I'm Sebastian Gomes. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.